Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trent and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. Well, hi, everybody. I want to welcome you all tonight to our uh, latest installment of the Rev War Revelry series. Tonight we are going to be focusing on Benedict Arnold's raid along the James River in the winter of 1781 and tonight we have joining us uh, two Virginia historians uh, Mark Wilcox and John Pagano I'm going to give you both the opportunity to uh, give us a little bio who you are what you do uh, how are you kind of tied into the story of uh, Arnold's raid let's start with Mark all right well yeah my name is Mark Wilcox and I'm an interpretive ranger for Richmond National Battlefield Park and I'm also part of the emerging revolutionary war era and um we're very fortunate in Richmond that uh, part of Arnold's raid occurred on our property, on our park property, Chimborazo Medical Museum. And we do um, offer a just a commemorative type of event in January. We've done that, I think, for the last five years or so. And we will have uh, living historians. We do firing demos. We have colonial craftspeople out there. And it's it's an awesome event because it's, it's, it's so many uh, great neighbors in the Chimborazo area who will come by using the park for recreational purposes. And then, and then people really come from all over the city. We had uh, several hundred this past January, just come by and just check out what we're doing. I know our mission is uh, the civil war as it occurred in the Richmond area, but this is the one chance that we can uh, interpret 18th century uh, Richmond history. So just really happy to be a part of this tonight, Billy. Thank you. And John. Sure. Um, hey, everybody. Uh, yeah, I'm John Pagano, and I'm the historic site supervisor at Henrikus Historical Park in Chesterfield, Virginia. And, um, you know, I, I've been dabbling into uh, Revolutionary War history since I grew up in upstate New York and uh, in the Hudson Valley and grew up with the culture of, uh, of, of that, you know, going to Fort Ticonderoga, you know, and having the battlefields there and the forts there, you know, and, and here in Virginia, you know, my, my professional expertise bounced around from, you know, museum work in the Civil War period to, um, you know, I, I 
work at a 17th century site, but um, it's really come on to me uh, through living history and also being a programs guy to illuminate uh, this story of Arnold's raid on Richmond. Uh, but in, in more than that, just his presence in Virginia uh, for those several months. And uh, now through the uh, 250th anniversary of the revolution coming, uh, the county that I work in is going to be illuminating uh, all of those interactions between uh, the armies and the communities. And uh, it really um, has fallen onto me, and Mark probably knows this really well too, uh, that there aren't very many people who are familiar with the idea that the revolution happened outside of Yorktown. And uh, <laughs> Richmond especially, and uh, certainly having a high-profile person like Benedict Arnold uh, is definitely going to at least be uh, brain candy for some people to dabble in. So, you know, um, right now I'm in the middle of all of that, I think, as, as Mark is. Yeah, well, thank you both for being here. And uh, yeah, John, it's it's incredible how many people I meet that, that say that their colonial history passion began up in the Lake George, Lake Champlain region, because it certainly did for me as well, uh, visiting those forts up there growing up. So uh, to start us off tonight, provide context, uh, can one of you give us a little brief background of the military situation in the South as 1780 is coming to a close? Were there British forces already operating in Virginia before Arnold even got there? Go ahead, Mark. I know you're writing a book on some of this. So. Yeah, well, in 1780, of course, the British have uh, decided to head south and Charleston is going to fall in May, one of the, if not the largest American patriots surrenders of the war. And uh, as John was saying, uh, my friend Rob Orson and I have, have just finished uh, writing a book on the Battle of Camden, which took place in, in August, August 16th of 1780. And it was uh, just a disaster for American forces under Horatio Gates and Gates's reputation really as a military leader would be, would be ruined at that point, would never be able to recover. You've got a situation where after the Battle of Camden, the largest Patriot forces operating are partisan forces, militia, uh, under uh, Thomas Sumter, Francis Marion, uh, Andrew Pickens and the like will uh, pick up the mantle. And uh, they are actually keeping um, uh, the revolutionary, uh, I guess, spirit alive down in South Carolina. And it's uh, Lord Cornwallis is, it's just, it's a brilliant battle at Camden. He is uh, the, uh, his British forces there are absolutely superb, but it's going to prove to be the high watermark of the of the British incursions there in the South. And Cornwallis is going to be busy trying to push to the North, trying to push, roll up through North Carolina and then into Virginia. And Virginia is providing men munitions for the uh, uh, American or Patriot Southern Department. And if the British can knock out Virginia, that's going to be a coup. They knock them out of the war. Uh, it's really going to maybe uh, end the, uh, the uh, revolutionary spirit uh, uh, in what they called the colonies. We were calling the states at that point. And uh, the partisan forces are just going to be a thorn in, in Cornwallis's side. He's going to lose um, uh, his flank protections. He's at King's Mountain in October of 1780. He's going to Patrick Ferguson. And his loyalist uh, provincials are going to uh, lose a big battle to uh, southern militia and uh, the older mountain men from what we call now uh, East Tennessee, the Watauga settlement, uh, 
in January of 1781, Daniel Morgan is going to fight a brilliantly defensive action against the dreaded Bannister Tarleton at Calpens. And Cornwallis, though, at that point is, is he's picking up, he's packing up, he's going to move into North Carolina. Again, trying to trying to get to Virginia and knock that, that colony out of the war. Um, he's going to deal with the new Southern uh, Department commander, Nathaniel Green at Guilford Courthouse. And of course, the British, as we all know, is going to officially win that belt. But uh, Cornwallis's troops are going to be mauled and he's going to have to retreat back to Wilmington to regroup and refit and finally uh, move up into Virginia. And um, coming down south to take uh, control of, of the what's going to be the rebuilt Continental Forces, who were almost decimated from Maryland, from Delaware, Camden, is going to be Nathaniel Green. And, He's going to ride through the new capital, Virginia, Richmond, uh, with uh, Baron von Steuben, who has just worked wonders at Valley Forge and really creating, in my opinion, the American army in terms of their ability to drill and to move, maneuver. And von Steuben is, is anxious to stay by the side of Nathaniel Green, but he is going to get the assignment to stay in Richmond, to stay in Virginia, set up a a, a barracks, a depot to try to outfit, try to, to enlist battalions, brigades of continental troops and send them south uh, for the aid of, Baron, uh, of Nathaniel Green. So that's pretty much where we are. We're moving into 1781 and um, Virginia is uh, not really prepared for war. They've moved their capital from Williamsburg to, to the small hamlet of of, uh, of Richmond, and by January 1781, it's still pretty much a small town. Um, not a lot of residents, not a lot of buildings. Thomas Jefferson is still the governor. And uh, so what we're going to find out with Arnold's raid is that uh, Virginia was woefully unprepared for the arrival of the British. It's so why is Brigadier General Benedict Arnold ordered to take a 1800 or so man expeditionary force to Virginia? What was his mission? And why now, again, is that focus shifting to uh, the Commonwealth? All right. Um, so, you know, it's interesting with Arnold because it, it, people forget that it wasn't even three months before he was a, a major general in the American Army. Uh, you know, his, his commission to being a brigadier general uh, launches him into uh, a concept that the high command in New York has, which is we want you to prove yourself and we want you to prove yourself. In the meantime, we have this idea that General Green's army is being supplied through Virginia, uh, specifically the corridor between Richmond and Petersburg. So he will get that force that will ultimately be a mix of veterans and some newer troops and leave that area around Sandy Hook, New Jersey, and New York, you know, late December, 1780. And when he comes down into Virginia and, and is uh, moving his way up the James, his orders partly are known and partly are unfolded as the, the traveling commences. Um, his principal orders are to disrupt communications and supplies between Virginia and General Green's army um, but there is this essence that 
here's Arnold, who is going to scare the pants off of the architect of the revolution, Thomas Jefferson, and his governance of Virginia. There's a lot of things involved in this, uh, we'll call it a raid. Uh, remember, there are raids into the Chesapeake and Virginia before this. This one's going to come inland. This one's going to go deep. Um, so and it, it gives you a sense of that by the troops that are with him. Uh, we know that the fleet, of course, gets disrupted by a storm off the coast, and only half of his force is with him when he comes up the James. Uh, fortunately for him, the best unit in his command, uh, the Queen's Rangers of Lieutenant Colonel John Graves Simcoe, uh, they're with him, uh, as are some of Captain Johann Evald's Jaegers, the 76th, 80th Regiments of Foot, and presumably some of um, Arnold's headquarters troops, the uh, American Legion, which are part mounted and part on foot. But um, when he comes up the, you know, up the James, it's up to him to basically uh, design the plan. And he, we know he is uh, moving up uh, with some loyalists and the Queens Rangers who grew up in Tidewater, Virginia. Uh, they're in the lead ships. They're able to guide him to places. And um, when he arrives, um, at Fort Hood or Hood's Point Battery. And that is the night of January 4th, 1781, engages the militia there briefly. Uh, it is now set in motion, uh, the turn of events that will end in him being in Richmond. Uh, you know, Jefferson's aware that Arnold's fleet has come around into the Chesapeake. Uh, the, by the second day of January, uh, Jefferson's put out the call for militia and to find out where Arnold's going. So when he engages at Hood's Point, People now know he's moving up river. What's his next stop going to be Richmond or Petersburg? And now the militia is fanning out. And now Arnold's got to decide which way on the river do I go? And on January 5th, he disembarks at Westover. And there the rest will begin. And guys, I yeah. think it's important to remember that um, when we think about Benedict Arnold, the first word that comes to mind is traitor. He is given this task, as John said, he's trying to prove himself. And it's an important task, but he's not fully trusted by the British high command. Uh, Henry Clinton, in command of all British forces, is going to make sure that uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, John Greg Simcoe, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Dundas of the 80th Regiment, keep an eye on, on Arnold because they're not fully sure, they're not fully convinced that he has indeed uh, changed his coat. And so they, they were keeping an eye on him and ready to assume command of this operation, mm -hmm. this raid, if necessary. Right. right. They received uh, dormant commissions. From Clinton, right. should uh, Arnold be killed, or uh, if he was just incapable of uh, completing yeah. his mission, and Arnold obviously did not know about this. But wow. I think optic-wise too, um, it looks good for if the British are trying to persuade anybody else to come onto their side by giving Arnold, you know, an active field commission like this and a brigadier generalship, because it looks like they're treating him very well after what he had just done. Uh, so they definitely think that that's on their mind as well. At least you can assume. So Arnold himself, you know, one of the best soldiers in American history. What were some of, or give us a brief description kind of of his service uh, prior to uh, this 1781 operation. Uh, and what really, why is he now donning that scarlet red? Well, of course, first he's going to be uh, a part of the capture of Fort Ticonderoga with Ethan Allen. And Arnold has got, in my opinion, Arnold's got a big ego. He's got a big ego, but he does have, he does have a lot of talent. Um, he is going to be part of the, uh, 
um, American operations trying to, to capture Montreal, Quebec. He's going to be severely wounded in the leg at Quebec. But then he'll also serve with distinction at Saratoga, even after being ordered off the field by Horatio Gates, the hero of Saratoga, he called himself, and but still would return and still lead his troops and wounded again in the same leg. And, uh, you know, I firmly believe that had he not turned traitor, had he not made that decision, there would be a state named after him. There would be countless high schools and junior colleges named after Benedict Arnold. Yeah, and I know uh, people always say, too, if had, had he been killed at Saratoga rather than this wounded, even had he just gone unscathed, um, that he still would have gone down kind of in the pantheon of great American leaders and American heroes. Uh, I always like to say that Benedict Arnold, the American, did, in fact, die at Saratoga because after, you know, perceiving that wound, it really did precipitate that downward spiral uh, towards treason. Yeah, that's so, a great point. Looking now at the other side, the Americans who are in Virginia, what kind of opposition is there to actually slow down or prevent Arnold from moving so inland? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, that comes up um, a lot. And one of the one of the things I often say is that you have to look at it and there's two, there's a prism of two forces. There is the continental forces, there is the militia. The militia is is commanded by Governor Jefferson. Um, any continental forces in Virginia are commanded by, by uh, Steuben, right? Um, but Jefferson is giving Steuben, and Steuben is careful with the politics of command. At times, Steuben will be commanding a force of Virginia militia and some continentals, but basically they entrust Steuben with a lot of the organizing of this defense of Virginia. The problem is the infrastructure and the chain of command doesn't allow him to quickly communicate with all these separate factions of the militia. Um, you know, the second that Arnold is passing up the peninsula, uh, you have militia that is forming there, the lower militia of Virginia. Uh, and they've been quite active because of the, the recent raids the last few years. Um, so they're, they're on it. The problem is he just blows past them. And the question is, what's the militia like in the middle of Virginia uh, around Richmond? And so now if you just think about um, what we'll call the, the Hanover, the Goochland, the uh, Henrico County, New Kent, Chesterfield, uh, Prince, Prince George County, all these counties are really going to be in the middle of this. Uh, they get called up pretty quickly. The, the problem is define how long it takes in the middle of a uh, winter, especially in what is right at really around the holidays um, time for these, especially officers in the militia, to gather effective forces in the field in the middle of winter holidays. And Arnold strikes perfectly. Um, it takes the militia, uh, usually in this, in this campaign, somewhere about two days, in some places three days, to come under arms. And a lot of times what these officers are saying is that um, I've got 100 men who have turned out with their muskets, and I got 200 who have none. Um, so now the militias are starting to segregate between the armed men and the unarmed men. What do we do with them? Um, so when you look at that, yes, it, there, there was militia at, at Hood's Point Battery, but they're gone. They leave. Um, at Westover, there's no militia anywhere in the ballpark. 
um, the, the force that was organizing, uh, you have a couple of officers. Jefferson's going to organize the militia by um, Major Alexander Dick, who is basically a, a veteran of the Virginia State Marines. Um, he's an effective officer. He's been on the oceans. He's been captured, prisoner of war in Britain, uh, escaped. And he's the guy that's going to lead a, um, a mounted infantry force uh, on horseback down the road from Richmond towards Westover. Um, and that leaves other guys around Richmond, and that'll fall to the command of Colonel John Nicholas, who is basically acting as Jefferson's uh, right-hand aide-de-camp in the field at this moment. Um, so Major Alexander Dick will be actually the, the party that will be kind of ordered to slow Arnold's advance down. But where to do that? Well, they've been told, hey, Arnold's landing at Westover. All right, so what's a good spot? One of the, ch the choice spots will be Four Mile Creek, um, several miles below Richmond, um, and, and that'll be a slowdown. There's a bridge. There's a, you know, you slow those guys down. Whatever you do, slow them down so the militia can organize in the capital. Nicholas, however, is also tasked with removing all the stores and government records and munitions out of Richmond and to see that Jefferson and his family are in safety. So Jefferson is commanding in the field while his family was in Richmond. That's a fun one to, to handle. Um, Steuben is basically governing everything towards Petersburg where the Continental stores are. So he's got Chesterfield Courthouse to Petersburg and is trying to effectively get all the stuff out of the way in case Arnold goes there. And in the meantime, trying to take these like half clad destitute Continentals at Chesterfield Barracks and see how many of them actually can take to the field, which in his writing says no more than 150. Um, there's some Virginia State uh, artillery floating around. There's some other troops, but there's two major interactions taking place in the militia command. Colonels and majors and these people, almost all of them, the vast majority, are former Continental veterans who can handle the troops and the organizing as soon as they get the men and the weapons. No problem. So on the eve of Arnold pretty much coming to Richmond, there's roughly four to 5,000 militia organizing. The problem is there's no more than probably seven or 800 that are in the field ready to come after Arnold when he's marching on Richmond. Okay. Yeah, not, not much. And as, as Mark uh, was talking about kind of a theme with this whole period is that Virginia just simply was not ready or prepared to actually oppose any kind of significant British force uh, moving through the state. Now, back to Arnold. Uh, this in itself is an amphibious operation. You know, he's not marching men overland down to Virginia. He's taking them uh, by ship, and he's going to be projecting that power from sea onto land in order to accomplish this mission. So for people who maybe aren't familiar with that part of Virginia or the James River in itself, is there going to be really any kind of significant obstacles when it comes to moving a force like this uh, into the James River? That you can think of at least. Yeah. Hey, you want to handle that, Mark? You want me to? Well, let's just both do that. I mean, it's, right. and John, you may know more, a little bit about this than I do. I'm thinking about Hood's Point right there at the mouth of the Appomattox River um, that was supposed to be a huge obstacle. It was supposed to be a, a, a battery it was supposed to be a militia that should have been able to sweep anything coming up the river, and they just weren't, weren't, weren't ready and weren't able to stand against the British, and there wasn't much opposition there. But as far as bringing um, 
you know, craft up the river, there really wasn't any obstacles that I can think of. Correct. Yes. So the, yeah, the Virginia State Navy at this point is hiding. Um, they they pretty much are. There's two places they usually went uh, to the Upper Pamunkey or farther up in the Chickahominy or in later 1781 they get trapped at Osborne's Landing. Um, so they're not really willing to engage with Arnold's fleet. So Arnold has a free pass, to pretty much dock where he wants. But the other part of this that comes up is when, when Arnold is considering where to bring his fleet in to disembark, uh, he knows that since he has a price on his head um, that he does not want to be in the field in terms of miles or time longer than a couple of days march from his ships. He, it's what I call the Lexington and Concord factor. The more that he and his force gets away from their base of supplies or ships, the more they feel that several thousand Americans with guns are going to surround them and pick them off on the way back. Um, so if we look at the logistics and the smartness that is Arnold, he picks the one logical place, Westover. Um, you can go into the idea of who lives there and Arnold's relations, which Mark, I don't know if you want to touch on that in a few seconds, but when, when Arnold gets to Westover, he's, he knows clearly that if his, his guys, by the way, are on ships for what, two and a half, three weeks. And, and I want you to imagine being on that ship and then your officer is Benedict Arnold. Now you're just like paping, paper pushing officer. We're talking one of the most driven military figures in that period who is like, you guys were on this ship for three weeks, but you know what? I want you to get off without much rest and do force marches, attack the Virginia capital, destroy everything there, and get me back safely to my base of supplies. Um, and Arnold knew that Westover was at the most two days march, and that was about it. The question is, could his troops pull off the raid, win, and get back safely in that amount of time? And also remember that, John, you made a great point that Arnold had a price on his head. He couldn't afford to linger too long anywhere. He couldn't afford a pitched battle, so to speak, uh, because if he's taken, there's nothing more than George Washington would have wanted than to have Benedict Arnold at the end of a rope. So it's going to be a lightning raid, absolutely. Um, and he's going to select Westover because there is a, he's got a family connection as far as, as uh, Mrs. Arnold is concerned. She's actually um, uh, a cousin, I believe, to the lady of the house, the Bird family live at Westover. And uh, so you've got a, a nice connection there. And uh, just a plug for historic Westover Plantation. There's a family who lives there, been over 100 years. They've uh, been still farming at Westover Plantation. The housing grounds are open. Uh, come out and, and, uh, and take a tour. It's fantastic. But they, they do talk quite a bit about this. <clears throat> and there's one story that the family tells is that when Arnold arrives, you know, he's going to use property of the birds in terms of maybe draft animals, maybe some wagons, and what maybe the Bird family would have considered property enslaved people. And Mrs. Bird is uh, agreeable to allow him to use that, that property, but she also wants that property back and she will get a little nervous, you know, want to make sure she's going to get it back and she's going to write a letter to General Arnold asking when she's going to you know, get those things back, the property back. And that letter is intercepted by, uh, I guess, Patriot forces. And so she's got a lot of explaining to do, right? And 
so they tell the story that Benedict Arnold actually comes into the uh, the house on the way back, and he'll take his saber and whack the the banister of the house just to sh- kind of give the impression that he didn't do any favors to this house. They were not in partnership or in league. That he actually treated it um, very roughly. So they try to get her off the hook. But Westover is what, only about maybe 25 miles or so from Richmond. And uh, with the landing of Westover, I've always, you know, I believe that Jefferson thought that his target was going to be Williamsburg. Much Stoyman's thinking maybe Petersburg, as John said. And I always like to say that when he finds out that uh, uh, the British forces have landed at Westover, I always felt that Thomas Jefferson got caught watching the paint dry. And now it's hurry up, get this done, get the public stories, get the public papers, get everything out. And once they got that into motion, um, I think they did a fairly good job. Not everything could be moved, of course. Um, but as John said, Jefferson was in the field sending his family down the river, down to Tuckahoe Plantation, where he's going to join them later. And um, But Westover is, is uh, just a really an ideal spot. Deep water right there in the, a wide portion of the river to be able to land. You know, you've got that connection, a good base of operations. So, so after landing at Westover, now his next stop is going to be Richmond. Now, you had mentioned, Mark, how Richmond was a very small hamlet at the time, really not much of a capital uh, as we would think today. But why was it deemed such a necessary military target for Arnold's force? Yeah, I think because uh, you've only got about maybe less than a thousand residents there. It's been, you know, maybe 300 buildings. You've got it, it's, it's been the capital of Virginia for less than a year. Uh, but again, I think. I think knocking that capital out, helping to knock that state out of the uh, out of the revolutionary cause in terms of stopping any type of munitions, any type of manpower that's being sent down to Green's army in South Carolina, I think is crucial for the British war effort. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting, you know, Richmond as a target. Um, there's a lot of things to think about and um, landing at Westover, you know, it probably was on Arnold's mind too. There's symbolic things like right up the road next door neighbors is one of the signers of the declaration um, and the Harrisons um, going to Richmond, the capital and throwing it, you know, out of, you know, just they, they're going to run for their lives to Charlottesville, you know, all these things. Um, but one of the things that really is going on around Richmond is that again, it's the center of the um, military affairs of Virginia to Green's army. So it shakes that up right away. But outside of town is this place called the Westham Laboratories and Foundry, right? Uh, And it's a pretty effective place and was actually going for, you know, a few years to the point where if you take that out, it, it, it has a lot of stuff that Green's army really needs. All right. So there's that. Um, so it is almost every factor involved in this, but remember time is of the essence. Um, so when, when you're moving your, you know, 800 to 900 men, you know, up that road, you know, what is it, maybe 28 miles, uh, you know, in square numbers, you know, usually the Queens Rangers probably could have done that in a day in any other campaign, but these guys are, sh- are ship stiff um, and the weather is terrible. And it will be the whole week. So when they're marching up and now they're, they're seen, they're actually spotted um, by an officer who is now going to uh, send word up, up the road uh, towards Richmond. 
And now Major Alexander Dick is going to take up that position at Four Mile Creek, which is just, uh, you know, um, outside of Richmond, mostly halfway down the, the road. But Arnold's forces are making their way to Four Mile Creek. Most of them don't know what's ahead of them. You know, there's some Virginians in the Queens Rangers, but most are like, we just know Richmond somewhere up that road. And almost all the bridges that are in their way are plank bridges. So anywhere you can basically occupy, um, if you're the militia, pull up the planks of a bridge, you slow that force down for hours, if not for an overnight. So Four Mile Creek was a, was a good selection. The only thing is it's debated on this is that um, Major Alexander Dick was apparently told to engage Arnold there. Uh, he chose to pull the planks of the bridge and, and scamper back to Richmond and, you know, when Arnold gets to Four Mile Creek after leaving Westover, at, well, I think after 11 in the morning on January uh, 4th, they stop at Four Mile Creek because there's no bridge to cross. You know, and someone the other day was asking me, why wouldn't they just wade through Four Mile Creek? And I, I said, well, why don't you go try it <laughs> and see, see what happens? So uh, they're exhausted. So they bivouac there for, you know, three or four hours, whoever it is. And then the next day, they're starting to move towards Richmond. Um, you know, Dick is kind of an interesting guy because he's got these mounted guys. Mostly he goes back to Richmond and I think he thought there would be a bigger force assembled there. And he was going to augment those troops all together atop Richmond and on those Heights. And if there was several hundred troops up there, uh, waiting, it might've been a more effective battle. <laughs> so, um, so Arnold is basically going to, uh, on the morning of January 5th, march towards Richmond, uh, you know, the Queens Rangers, those Jaegers, 76, 80 Regiment of Foot. Um, and he's he's approaching a town, the town. And of course, there you have the militia waiting on top of those heights. The question is, what's Arnold going to do? What are the militia going to do? And while that's going on, Steuben and Jefferson are on the other side of the river watching. Uh, from Manchester, and there's other militia forces starting to converge, but they're still a day away. So that brings us to the, the skirmish, uh, the Battle of Richmond. Yes, yeah, so now as Arnold's forces there, uh, paint us a picture of what happens next, because as you said, it does uh, begin with a skirmish there on Church Hill. Well, they called it Richmond Hill at the time, and um, you've got about... Uh, 200 or so, maybe Henrico militiamen, Henrico County, really surrounding the city. Um, these are not well-trained men. These are not well-provisioned men. And uh, there may have been some who had done some militia duty. In fact, most of them had, but I'm not sure what their combat readiness or combat experience really would have been like. And, uh, you know, Arnold's forces are coming down the, what was called the Williamsburg Road, really moving into our modern uh, main street, as a matter of fact. And we do have a nice firsthand account from uh, Captain Johann Ewald, the uh, commander of the German Jaeger Corps. It's part of our Chimborazo source file put together by my good friend and co-worker, Mike Gorman. Give him a good, good shout out here. Um, but, you know, Ewald talks about coming in. There's a force on a, on a hill with some timber at the bottom there to their right. Arnold sees that. And uh, Ewald says he comes up to him and says something along the lines of, this looks like a job for you. And so the Jaegers are going to deploy. They're going to head up the hill. And uh, Ewald's going to tell us that the 
Local militiamen are going to fire a ragged volley, one ragged volley. One Jaeger is going to be wounded. A couple more are going to venture a little bit too far to the right. They will be captured. But after that, the militia are done. They fire their one shot, and then they turn tail. They run uh, a gorge, uh, across a gorge, and into the woods. That gorge is called Bloody Run, um, uh, we know today. Um, but it, it's, of course, this is all the site of, uh, by, by the 1860s. It's the site of the Chimborazo Hospital along that, uh, that wide uh, uh, hilltop there. Uh, he's in, the Jaegers are going to be uh, joined by some of the uh, cavalry of the Queen's Rangers. And there's, there's an interesting story. Down on Main Street, as the rest of Arnold's forces are coming in the 80th and so forth, you've got some, the, the, the old stone house. Now, it's currently occupied. It's the Edgar Allan Poe Museum, but it's considered the oldest stone dwelling in Richmond going back to uh, maybe even before the beginning of it, maybe to the, to the 17th century. But a, a book came out later in the 19th century, and uh, there was a woman who, uh, her name was Elizabeth, I've got this written down, Elizabeth Welsh, writing about her mother, whose name was Elizabeth Eggie. She and her husband, Samuel Eggie, lived in the Stone House, and they have, that family had, uh, had a story, a family connection, that they said that uh, Elizabeth Eggie remembered looking down, looking east along Main Street and seeing cavalry riding up and down Richmond Hill. She thought they made a proper sight. But it's a firsthand account of someone who actually saw Arnold's forces coming in. So as far as the Battle of Richmond, that's, uh, that's pretty much about you know, it in a nutshell, just some token resistance and a militia fillet. And it's uh, that same day that after Richmond is occupied by Arnold, then uh, I think it's uh, Simcoe goes off towards uh, the foundry uh, to destroy or, or take whatever he could there, correct? Yeah, it's going to be Simcoe and Ewald, and uh, a few members of the 80th Regiment are going to march those six miles uh, down to where the uh, foundry is. Uh, it's Right now, it's in the vicinity of the neighborhood of Windsor Farms, and um, that part of the river, actually. And they're going to go down, and uh, Ewald's going to give us a pretty uh, clear account of what they do to the foundry in terms of building that, dumping barrels of gunpowder into, into the river, spoiling as, much, as many munitions as possible, and even getting into uh, some local houses and appropriating some ale, some beer, some rum. So a lot of these guys are going to get, uh, you know, feeling no pain while they're doing that. Yeah, I think on the, the march back to uh, Richmond, Ewald said that, uh, his men were so drunk and noisy that they could be heard from two hours away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really interesting with that with that part of things because um, the that force going to uh, Weston was being bird dogged by uh, the Chesterfield militia, and actually some Continentals were directly across from them on the south side of the James. They had removed all the uh, the ferry boats from Britain's Ferry, which is not too far above that. Uh, but they were pretty much being watched. And, and the idea was if, they, if they're going to cross the James, we're going to be ready for them. That was Steuben's and the militia's role over there was to make sure that did not happen. Uh, one of the things I really find interesting is that they're pulling back into Richmond. And, you know, if they would have continued marching, you know, another 10 miles or so, they would have been right on Jefferson's family, um, which they probably, they wouldn't have known that. But the other part of this that's really interesting is that Jefferson's chief military um, officer, Colonel John Nicholas, 
when he got Jefferson squared away, um, he was also tasked with organizing all the militia that were coming across at the Tuckahoe Ferry and also from Goochland and um, points west and western Henrico. And they were all organizing uh, on Tuckahoe Creek right across the bridge in what's now Goochland uh, County. It's right where the um, Tuckahoe Ferry and the River Road all meet. And that force was gathering was pretty big. And uh, that's where Nicholas has actually loaned Continentals from uh, General Steubman. Uh, it was about 50 or 60 uh, veteran Continentals, not even the new, the new recruits that were at Chesterfield, but these are some of the guys that were waiting to go home that had seen service for two or three years. Uh, the commander of those guys was Captain Woodson, who actually didn't live too far away. And I'm sure that he had some ideas of get backs against Arnold. The question is what, in what capacity? Um, so here you have a force of uh, one full company of Continental veterans and a few hundred militia under Colonel Nicholas. And what we know happens is one of the more intriguing events in this storyline. Uh, which is the attack of Arnold's outpost on the suburbs of Richmond the morning of January 6th, which uh, Colonel Nicholas in his uh, pension will refer to as the, uh, the fight at Scuffletown. Um, so that is an interesting fight because apparently they did drive in Arnold's outpost and we know that Arnold was in a hurry. I'm going to get back to Westover, and I think that this, this really aggressive uh, officer corps of Nicholas and Woodson made it seem like maybe there were thousands of militia in the nighttime, the morning darkness, now pushing in his pickets. And I bet you the order came quick that, all right, drunken guys, we need to get out of Richmond. No, I think, I think you're exactly right. And again, th this is supposed to be a lightning uh, raid, which it pretty much was, and the call for the, the the county militias to muster from Jefferson goes out late, but it still goes out. And time is of the essence for Arnold here, because the longer he waits, the bigger the force is gathering against him. Yeah. So uh, we move into the next day, January sixth. Um, Arnold spends the night in Richmond, and then that day uh, he's going to give. Um, kind of an, it is an ultimatum in any sense to Jefferson uh, to essentially have everybody load up all these supplies onto the Royal Navy ships. And I'll even give you a half price for them too. It sounds like a pretty good deal. And I know a lot of the merchants in town were, were considering that, Hey, this, this might be our best way out of it. And yeah. Add on to yeah, that. We, yeah. So we know Jefferson's reply to that, which is uh yeah. He, you can go take your uh, tobacco and you know what to do with it. And, you know, and Jefferson had, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting that, um, you know, the people forget that tobacco uh, is, is being uh, secured by Virginia, uh, by the, from the planters to finance trade and supply through the Caribbean for its Virginia troops. Um, so when we're talking about the destruction of tobacco. It's not just, the privately owned stuff. It's the stuff that Virginia is purchasing to use in its commodities for exchange to supply its, its war effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. But as you said, uh, Jefferson uh, totally shoots down this offer from Arnold. And that's when Arnold then uh, begins ordering his men to, to take some of these military targets, but things start to get out of hand. 
uh, and some sacking of the, the city begins, as well as a lot of buildings are put put to the torch. So go into a little detail about how things kind of uh, got out of hand there. Well, you know, he loads up about 42 of these small craft with with um, commodities, with tobacco, with rum, that kind of thing. Anything that he could sell for cash money uh, and sends it on down the river. But he destroys the rope walk there, rockets landing, shipbuilding warehouses, as many public buildings as he can get his hands on. You know, he's he's giving uh, Jefferson and the people of Richmond the opportunity to save their city if they just first, A, stop shooting at us, and B, just give us what we want and we'll go on about our business. And you know, Jefferson had you know cho no choice but to do not cave into that. And Arnold is most likely infuriated by that. So he's just a brand new capital and it's really getting sacked. It's going to be burned. What I've always found interesting is he misses what's called the old Capitol building. Uh, the Virginia Assembly had not really agreed upon where the new uh, state capital is going to be, the building itself. And so the meeting in a, in a way, a confiscated warehouse, and it turns out it's, it's a British-owned company. The, the Williams Cunning, Cumming, uh, Cunningham and Company owned this property. And therefore, since they were Tories, they were loyalists, it's left uh, undestroyed. It turns out there are public documents still there. There's a, there a lot of uh, public items in there that, that Arnold could have destroyed, but he, he actually misses that. Uh, it's right around... Uh, uh, 14th Street or so, 14th and May, that area, and Cary, rather. Okay. So Arnold's just laid waste to Richmond. Now he's going to turn around and head towards Westover. Uh, does he get there safely? Is Does the Continental Militia, or Virginia Militia, excuse me, begin to harass him? Or what, what transpires next? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, I'm going to ask I'm gonna ask Mark, because I think he's got, Mark, I don't know if you have Evald's uh, journal or anything, uh, near you, but um, he, uh, between Simcoe and, and uh, Captain Evald, they, they leave us these really good accounts, right? And we know that Arnold backtracks to Four Mile Creek, pauses there, doesn't overnight again, uh, and then uh, the next day we'll, we'll get back to Westover. Uh, John Gray Simcoe is going to have a reference in his writings that talks about that march being one of the, the worst marches that the, that unit had seen in the entire war, which is saying a lot when you're considering the Queens Rangers history. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he referred to the road as basically the rain pouring down, the trees overhanging, uh, the, the smallness of the road, and that the, the country people were coming after his stragglers uh, that disappeared on that march. Um, and of course, you know, they do get back um, on on January 7th, one thing that uh, I thought interesting, I think it's Evald that that wrote that they, the amount of men they lost on that trek is a little higher than I think Simcoe or some others would give credit for. Um, Mark, I don't know if you have that reference. I just don't have it in front of me. I don't have it in front of me either, but the British, of course, that, that was par for the course in terms of underscoring their the true amount of loss, that kind of thing. But John, you made a great point earlier on that it was rem reminiscent of uh, the British raided Lexington and Concord in terms of the hell these guys went through trying to just get back to safety, get back in that case to Boston, get back to Westover now. And yeah, the, the, the yeah, Simcoe's uh, mentioning of the rainstorm, the weather. Um, I think it was uh, soon to be uh, Governor Nelson. Nelson was commanding a large force of the lower uh, militia, you know, the peninsula. 
and he had gathered, I believe, several hundred militia at um, at uh, Holtz Forge, which I think today is Providence Forge area in that neck of the woods. And he basically said, I believe, in his writings that his force had organized. They, they basically gathered the uh, several hundred of the best armed men and were waiting to cut down the peninsula and cut Arnold off from Westover. When the storm comes in, and I believe in his letter says, basically flooded his militia out. Um, and what were they living in? What was the militia actually living in? Uh, basically brush huts. Uh, they had no canvas to sleep under. So they were sleeping in these, you know, branching uh, cabins that they threw up to, you know, and here comes this rainstorm in the middle of January and essentially took this effective strike force that was going to come down on Arnold's left flank. Um, and basically that opportunity went by the wayside. So once they get to Westover now, Arnold's going to determine and then uh, go to Portsmouth, where he'll fortify and establish that kind of base of operations uh, along the shoreline there. Uh, there are several skirmishes on the way back towards Portsmouth. So I know the, the militia does start or try to, to get in the way of him by this point, correct? Yes. Um, so one of the more interesting skirmishes is the uh, January 8th skirmish at Charles City Courthouse. Uh, this is a, you know, the, the militias had pretty much started to pinch in towards Westover and Arnold was nervous that they were getting too close. Uh, the job fell to the Queen's Rangers and specifically the Hussars, which is the mounted portion of the Queen's Rangers. And um, they, they struck out from uh, their camps in the evening of January 8th, um, did what they did on a bunch of different campaigns, they would simply go up to the militia wearing their green uh, jackets and just be like, do you see any red coats around here? And none of the militia know the Queens Rangers uniforms are the enemy. Uh, so they would simply just capture the pickets. Uh, and once they did that, you know, at Charles City Courthouse, it's dark. Here's this, um, you know, force of 40 or 50 Queens Rangers. And now they're just charging with horns blaring uh, into the, the camps at Charles City Courthouse. Uh, must have seemed like thousands of the enemy were attacking the militia there. Uh, and they basically chased them out. Um, in fact, some of those militiamen went into the, the tavern, the courthouse for shelter. Um, you know, there's stories about that you could still see blood stains on the tavern, the courthouse inside for, for years. Um, there were several militia killed by those swords uh, in that fight. And uh, it basically pushed out um, the, the buffer zone a little bit for Arnold's guys at Westover. Um, and of course, when he retreats from Westover, you know, again, they're, what's on the right, what's on the left on the James, and they go to shore. You know, there's some militia force. Let's, let's push them back. Here's a militia force. Let's push them back. And then they get to Portsmouth. They fortify. And uh, then it starts the new chapter in this, this campaign. So in your opinion, I think you could probably uh, agree that for Arnold, this was a fantastic debut, you know, donning that new quote or code of the, uh, the British Army, because once he gets back to Portsmouth, the campaign really comes to an end. So what really are the consequences, immediate consequences or longstanding consequences of this campaign? Yeah, Mark, you have a you have a more you have a better global brain than I do. 
I mean, I, I think it, it's a it's sort of a wake up call for Virginia, just how woefully unprepared they were. The fact that they moved their capital so far inland and that still wasn't safe enough. Um, Baron von Steuben is going to be working hard to to continue his job to try to continue to outfit uh, Continental Brigades to send south, and um, he is really going to become disgusted with Virginia politicians, Richmond politicians, in terms of um, kind of getting in his way of doing his job. Um, I think it, uh, you know, it it's going to strike fear into the hearts of, of Richmonders and Virginians that they were, really were not safe. That this man could just come right into their into their capital, and it's a and it's a slap in the face. It's a slap in the face to have the the capital of Virginia just Arnold just did whatever he did whatever he wanted to do at will. Came in, burned it, left. So it just you know, really really showcased the fact that Virginia just really didn't have a lot of defenses here. Yeah, and you think that kind of squarely can also be placed on the definitely the shoulders of Thomas Jefferson. Absolutely. Uh, at this point, not not a great period of his governorship there. So. Uh, we're going to have to bring you both back for another revelry discussion on the second part of Arnold's frolic through Virginia, uh, the springtime operations uh, that do occur around Petersburg such. But briefly describe, uh, for those who don't know, what role does Arnold later go on to play uh, that springtime in Virginia once William Phillips arrives with reinforcements and assumes command uh, in March? Does he lead men on the battlefield down there again? Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, we, we pretty much see that Arnold does what he's supposed to do and, and also hold a presence in Virginia by his, his uh, base of uh, supplies at uh, Portsmouth, um, setting the stage for whatever is coming next, which we, we know what happens. General Phillips, uh, he's going to arrive in Virginia in March of uh, 81, and then everything kind of goes forward from there. But something that really happens that I think is interesting is the Virginia – veteran officers that you know are like man we really got it handed to us in january um guys like muhlenberg or uh you know colonel parker and these guys that are commanding the militia opposing arnold um they they call somebody called it the core of observation they're simply encircling arnold while he's at portsmouth but they just don't do that what uh, muhlenberg does he takes all these militia units and he gives almost all of the commanders and the troops a chance to skirmish with Arnold's outpost at Portsmouth so they gain valuable battlefield experience, uh, sensing that this campaign is going to pick up and the militia is going to have to bear the brunt and they have to know what it's like to smell burning powder. Um, and I think once you once you have Arnold in juncture with Phillips, um, I always thought that conversation would be interesting because Phillips, of course, is, is captured at Saratoga, mm -hmm. and he has to now talk to Arnold, who was responsible for his imprisonment. Um, and, but they seem to work well together. Our, uh, Phillips is an Army commander, uh, and uh, Arnold Arnold's um, certainly, with Phillips, going to be a good wing commander. Um, Phillips will take command of the Army. Hey, Arnold, here, I need you to command half of it and go do this, and that's what the spring campaign will basically be until Phillips, you know, dies at Petersburg. Great. Excellent. So we are approaching the hour mark now. So I have uh, two last questions to ask you. Uh, the first one is what sites other than say Westover 
that are associated with Arnold's expedition can our viewers still visit today, even if it's just a simple interpretive marker uh, along the road? Well, certainly you can come to uh, Chimborazo uh, Park Medical Museum. You can, there are some history, historic markers there. Just down the road from us on 25th and Broad Street is historic St. John's Church, uh, where a good many of Arnold's troops bivouac uh, on the night of the 5th. And also, as I mentioned, down on around 14th and I believe it's maybe, uh, maybe Cary, there's a nice marker where that the old, uh, the old Capitol building was. And, um, and we do have, if you can stop in at Chimborazo, if you want to come in, we do, we've got some nice brochures on Arnold's Raid with some area maps and uh, to see what's, you know, what was there, what was still there. Uh, Galt's Tavern at 19th and Main Street is unfortunately a uh, kind of a, an empty lot there, but it's kind of nice to be in the space uh, where Arnold made his headquarters during the during the battle. So there's still a few few places around. Mark, and then John, talk a little bit about the uh, about the marker out there near Scuffletown. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This the the marker. So there is a marker at the intersection of Grove and Robinson in the Fan of Richmond. Uh, it is put up, it was put up by the Daughters of the American Revolution uh, in the 1850s. I want, I want to say the 1850s. And it's interesting because it says on this spot, Colonel Nicholas drove in Arnold's picket line. Uh, the really interesting thing is that they, they got the date wrong. It says January 4th, 1781. Um, but it's really neat that that's there. And, um, you know, there's, there's other locations that, you know, it's like you kind of, have to have your imagination there because there's no interpretive way signs yeah um the spot where colonel nicholas gathered his militia and troops to go march towards richmond on the morning of the 6th uh, i think is actually a um uh, a church in a, in, a, in a religious uh campus on river road uh west of richmond and i'm gonna i want to talk to them in the future to see if they'd be interested in putting a marker there for the 250th so um, but yeah, anything, I mean, all, there's a, there, right now there's a lot of spots you have to use your imagination, but I think when we go through the 250th, we have a chance to maybe interpret the places a little better, I think. Yeah. And it's a very important aspect of that as well. Yeah. The 250th coming up is going to definitely provide a lot of opportunity for these stories that typically aren't told to be told and gain some attention. Now, somebody in the chat, uh, said that you two should collaborate and write a book about this. So Sticking along the uh, subject of books, do you have any recommended reading or favorite books that are either focus on this subject or briefly cover it? Yeah, yeah, I do actually. Um, it's uh, Richmond during the Revolution, 1775 to 1783. Uh, it might be kind of a, uh, let me get it up here so people can see it. Uh, it might be difficult to even find today. It was actually, I think, first printed out back in the 70s, but this is a great book on early Richmond and the events surrounding uh, Arnold's raid. So I definitely do, you can still find it. I definitely do uh, recommend it. Yeah, yeah. And you know, if you um, if people want to get John Gray Simcoe's journal, uh, you can get a, a variety of places. You can get a soft pack uh, version at a vendor, um, Jazz, uh, J Jazz Townsend's website, T-O-W-N-S-E-N-D. He offers it there for not, it's a really in inexpensive price. Um, and I would say if you're reading the, the Queens Rangers uh, journal there by Simcoe, 
I mean, you have a lot of the material, you know. Um, I know Evald's uh, book is uh, out of print and it's expensive, but if you have the money to get that one, it's well worth it for all, all the campaign information, actually. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you both for sharing the story with us tonight. Uh, and thank you to the audience for tuning in. Uh, we will be back in two weeks from tonight on March 19th for another revelry. Uh, that will be a pre-recorded discussion with Eric Sterner on his upcoming book, The Battle of Upper Sandusky, 1782. Uh, and there are still tickets available for our bus tour coming up around Charleston and uh, uh, Veterans Day weekend in November. Uh, you can find a link to purchase tickets for that on our Facebook page, as well as on our blog, Emerging Revolutionary Award. Org. So I want to thank you all again and enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Thanks, everybody. Take care.